0: Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God.
1: The book of Genesis uh, provides a blueprint, a blueprint for life. Uh, And it does that by giving us horizontal themes all throughout the book of Genesis by which we understand what's wrong with the world and what God is promising to redeem the world and then what he does to actually redeem it. And verse 26 here, God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, It's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. It's another theme that runs all the way through the Bible, begins here carries throughout the entire Bible, and we need to understand it because today there are tremendous applications. There are critical applications, and we're not going to go into all the applications, but I want to give you a framework. Today we have, we have gender issues, class issues, race issues, color issues, socioeconomic issues. They're all related to the image of God, and so there are three things we're going to go into today. One, why is it important to understand what it means to be created in the image of God, to what does it mean to be in the image of God, and lastly, what did God do to repair the image of God? Why is it important to know it, what it is, what God did to redeem it? First, we're going to look at why it's important. Now, the Bible says, we just read it, every human being is made in the image of God. It's not just Christians who are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. What are the implications? A couple implications for you. One, the Bible says that no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've accomplished, whether you've succeeded, whether you've failed, whether you failed morally, whether you failed financially or socially, Everyone reflects the image of God. What does that mean? By nature, there is an inherent glory about you, there is an inherent significance, a value, a worth about you and every other human being. And that truth, what I just said to you right now, that truth is not implicit. It's not implicit. Science does not tell you that, history does not tell you that. History does not tell you. There's no scientific basis that says that human beings have an inherent worth, or a glory, or inherent rights, or an inherent dignity or value. Now scientifically, you'll learn, I was a biology major, I, can, I have enough credibility to tell you that, scientifically we know that human beings are the most complex organism, the most complex uh, animal, but it doesn't prove that they're the most significant. Nature does not prove that necessarily. And that creates a big problem. Why does it create a problem? It's a problem because ever since the days of our enlightened era, right, the enlightenment that says religion is a primitive thing, that you can only rely on scientific fact, empirical evidence to dignify something. That's what society says today. And yet, the same society says you have to teach your children that they have value. You have to teach your children that they have some sort of worth that's inherent about them. When there's no scientific evidence, there's no empirical evidence that that says that you do. But Christianity, because of the doctrine of man, because of the image of God, because we are grounded in a greater reality than what is visible reality, says this, God made you, and he made you in his image And he said, it is good. In fact, he says, it's very good. You were made in the image of God. There are no ifs about that. There are no ands about that. There are no buts about that, right? That's the first thing. The second thing we see is that, look, we live in a big city. We live in a very big city. And so it's easy to look at people and turn our nose against them, turn our nose up at their lifestyles, especially people in the city. When you think about people who live in the city, you think about a particular type of look, a particular kind of dress, a particular kind of lifestyle and pursuit. And it's easy to look at that. And judge that. It's easy to look at that and disdain that type of lifestyle, that type of behavior. You go out to South Street, go to Lorenzo's at any, at any night, right? Particularly Thursday through Sunday, you go there, right, on South Street during the weekend. People are very, very different. People are very different. It's easy to judge. It's easy to disdain how they dress, how they talk, their lifestyles. There's a prophet, Jonah. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of uh, the Assyrian empire, a very vicious and violent people. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to that great city, he says, and I want you to preach to that city. And Jonah goes the opposite direction, and Jonah gets on a boat, tries to go as far away from God as possible geographically, right? And there's a huge storm. Jonah gets swallowed by the fish, and uh, eventually Jonah goes to Nineveh. When he goes to Nineveh, he judges Nineveh. He despises Nineveh. He despises them racially. He despises them morally. And yet the book of Nineveh is open-ended. God says, "Nineveh has 120,000 people who does not know their right from their left. Should I not care about that great city?" Because the city is concentrated. The city is concentrated with square miles, very, very concentrated, of the image of God. Traffic jams. We hate traffic jams. You get on 76 and you head into the city. It's filled every square foot compact with the image of God. Get on a subway during rush hour. Get on a bus during rush hour. High rises in the city. Every person that you come across, this is what it means. Every person you come across, no matter how different they are from you, you should treat them with an inherent respect and dignity. Do you do that? Some of us, we're a lot more lenient on people outside of the church than inside the church. Uh, But if you think about it, if you look around right now, just right now to your right and your left, What do you have around you? A very compact, concentrated amount of the image of God. You should treat one another with respect, with lots of respect. This is the end of backtalk. This is the end of gossip. This is the end of resentment towards one another. And so we see that human beings have an inherent worth. We see that we tend to disdain people in the city We tend to disdain people racially or morally because they're different from us, and yet God calls us to respect one another. Number three, what happens in a society that dismisses and removes God from that equation? If God is calling you, if God is saying that I have created you in my image, objective reality, God is saying I've created you in my image, and he says you should treat one another with respect because you were created in my image, what happens when you take God out of that picture? That's the end of human dignity. Think about this. What makes a human being worthy? What makes a human being worthy of their rights today if that society does not believe that man has been created in the image of God? On what basis are you saying that a human being should be treated with inalienable rights? On what basis are you saying that a human being has rights if we don't believe that we've been created in the image of God anymore, if we just evolve, think about it, if we just evolve, we're just a complex set of molecules that collided so violently out of some primordial soup, then what truly is our inherent value? So when you remove objective uh, rights, when you move objective reality from the uh, equation, how can you reconcile the notion that we have any rights, that any of us here have any rights? if we're just molecules that have collided violently and evolved to become human beings, the most complex organism on the face of the earth, then that means violence is at the heart of our creation. That's what's at the root. That's what's natural. That means that it's natural for the strong to devour the weak. That means wars are natural. That means oppression is natural. Who are we to then say that rape is unjust, There's not a single person in this room that will say that rape is something that, well, I can believe what I want to believe, you can believe what you want to believe, that that's okay. There must be some transcendent reality that we are looking to to ground in some truth that these things are inherently wrong. Inherently wrong. If you don't believe that, you believe that We have no inherent significance or value or worth because you have nothing to ground that notion on. How can anyone say that rape or oppression, any form of violence, is wrong? How do you justify the right to choose to take a life? How do you justify the right that we all have a right to live? How do you justify that a fetus has rights? How do you justify that a baby has rights? How do you justify that an elderly person who doesn't have capacities has rights? How do you justify that an invalid or somebody who doesn't, who lacks the capacities of a normally functioning human being has any rights at all? Especially when violence and oppression, natural selection, strong versus weak, these things are all considered natural. We would have no inherent rights. Even Aristotle, believed, and justified slavery. Hitler believed and justified the systematic annihilation of six million people based on race. And more than ever, we're seeing conflicts, conflicts surrounding color, conflicts surrounding uh, political beliefs, conflicts surrounding race or education or class. It was the genuine Christians. It was genuine ancient Christians Because of their grounded belief in the imago Dei, the image of God, they championed all life. They protected all people because of inherent rights. They upheld God's image in creation. Verse 27, male and female, he created them. They protected that notion. So Christians were against infanticide. Infanticide was rampant in the ancient times. Christians were against it at all costs. Christians were against abortion from the beginning. Christians cared for the poor. Christian cared for the women. Christian cared for orphans. Christians supported widows. In a society where women were, especially the poor, but women who were poor were demeaned. They were objectified. They were vulnerable. In fact, the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, took away your rights as a citizen of Rome, which meant that you were rendered completely useless and an outcast of society in the most powerful empire in the world to date. That if you had lost your husband as a widow, you had three years to remarry, and if you did not find a husband within three years, your rights as a citizen were taken away. In that kind of society, Christians said, you know what? We don't believe that a woman has to get married if she's lost her husband. We don't believe a woman has to get married at all. They have an inherent value. And so if you were poor, if you were a widow, if you were an orphan, they made sure that you were supported. They've, the church said, I want to support you even if society says you're out. Even if society says you're lost. Even if you've lost your rights, you have an inherent value in the kingdom of God if you believe in the image of God. And if you believe in the image of God, you would have concern for all people, even those who disagree with your beliefs. You would be civil, you would treat people with respect. And even if people come to the church, you may have made tremendous mistakes, you may have made big mistakes the church would treat all people with respect. You may be in the midst of coming to church and trying to figure out what faith is, what it means to be a Christian. Metro hopes to be a place that will welcome all people to work out their faith. Because for some people, faith in Christ, pickaxe, happens instantly. Other people, it's a long journey, a long process. The church would treat all people with respect. I mean, here at Metro, if you've made big mistakes, if you've wandered away from the church, come back to the church. You know, four out of five people at Metro, uh, Metro says 80% of the people who come into Metro's doors are people who've wandered away from the church and are now returning. In fact, that's actually at the heart of why we have a pretty vibrant and upbeat community. The vibrant and upbeat community doesn't come from people who've grown up in the church and have stayed in the church. It, you know, we learn all, a lot of bad habits in the church when you do that it's people who are returning back to the church and looking at faith with different lens, looking at God with different lens, looking at Jesus' salvation, redemption through him alone with different lens. And when you've made mistakes or if you've turned to other things and you're now coming back to the church, God uses that in our church, it makes you more compassionate, helps you to understand people because you've been there, you see? That establishes a culture of Grace. It doesn't make those lifestyles okay, but what is the church? It's a hospital for sinners, and that's the point. The Bible says all of us here are broken. You and I, all created in the image of God, and yet we're broken images of God. It's why we don't honor the image of God in other people, in one another. It's why we oftentimes have malice and resentment and hatred towards one another. It's important to know that we're created in the image of God. Two, what does it mean? What is it? Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over all the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. God says, in other words, I've created you in my image, in my likeness. I've created you to to reflect my glory, to reflect my goodness, to reflect my love, to reflect my character. By the way, that's why we have the law. That's why we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are almost a, a mirror image of God's character, God's love, God's goodness. And he's saying, if you are created in my image, I want you to live in accordance with my image. Now, what he's saying is, if you reflect my character properly, You will represent me to the whole world and everything in the world. All of life, everything in it will start to flourish. And thus the chief end of man, if you've grown up in the church, the chief end of man is to what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, to reflect God's glory, so that you will rule over life, all of your affairs, but all the world well. That includes our environment, that includes your money, It's your sex life, your personal lifestyle, but also your community lifestyle, your city, all these things. You would rule over it well. That means your work gets impacted. That means your charity is impacted. What are the implications? One, if we are called to reflect God, that means all of us here are mirrors. We're like mirrors. Mirrors, by nature, inherently never produce their own light. Mirrors never produce their own image. They only reflect. A mirror is useful when it's reflecting something and when it's reflecting something properly. A mirror is always dependent on something on the outside, an objective reality, and reflecting that reality. That's how it's designed. In other words, what you choose to reflect is based on what you admire, what you love. You are a reflection of what you admire and what you love because you always reflect what you love. You always reflect what you love. We always depend on something outside of us to give us glory, a sense of importance, a sense of significance, a sense of weight. That's what glory means, by the way, in a sense, weight, substance, value, worth. The very word glory means to hold something at utmost value and worth and weight and significance. Now, some of us out there are saying, well, that's not me. I could care less what other people think about me. That's how I've lived all my life. I don't care what people think about me, and that's a lie. Because (laughs) why do you spend so much money then on your clothes? Why do you spend so much money on how you look? Stuff that you can own and show. The selfie culture today, where we eat, what we eat, how, what we're up to, what we're doing. Think about this. Even if, you're in, even if you act in a way where you're rebelling against today's culture, you're still being influenced by that culture. There's not a student in the world who says, well, I don't need professors. I don't need tests. I don't need grades. All I care about is what I think about how I do in school. Why are you in school? The very, it defeats the very purpose of being in school, to be validated, you see. The whole purpose of the resume is what? What you're saying is, I'm giving you my record. I want you to validate me. Try me. The whole purpose of a date is what? You're asking that person, am I worthy? Am I funny enough? Am I, am I kind enough? Do I have good enough character? see that? There's not a single musician or writer or scholar that can truly say, I don't care what other people think about me because the very essence of being an artist or a writer or a musician or a scholar is what? You need validation, someone to validate your work. We're validated always by something on the outside. And this passage is saying, if you don't look to God, if you don't look to your creator for the validation that you need, if you don't face God with your soul and trust in His love, if you don't derive uh, your own sense of beauty, an inherent beauty or worth or significance apart from His beauty and worth and significance and love, you're always going to turn to something else. You will always look to something else then for beauty and worth and importance and significance and love. It's why most of us are in relationships probably a lot longer than we should be. Why most of us turn to family and our careers and our professions and our, our professional success and academia. We all need something on the outside telling us you are okay to validate you. Otherwise, there's an emptiness. Otherwise, there's a darkness. There's no light that you can generate on your own. You need something on the outside to tell you something that you love, something that you admire, telling you, yes, you are okay. Two, depending on where you derive your validation, depending on where you derive your sense of worth and significance, that will, uh, you will either be a life-giving person or a life-draining person. You will either be a life-giving person or a life-taking person. That, in my mind, is the one fruit that you can look at next to another person and say, "Yes, this person cert- certainly has given and surrendered their life to Jesus Christ." Are they a life-giving person or a life-taking person, a draining person? I've been married for ten years—about ten years. One of the, my wife is like bracing herself right now. Uh, I've been married almost ten years. One of the things I learned, as much as I love my wife, if I believe—if I even begin to believe that I need her love to feel a sense of worth, and it's very easy to fall into that trap. The moment I believe I need her love to feel a sense of worth on on myself, then I start to turn to her instead of God for validation. And I derive glory and significance from her. Two things will happen. It will crush me, because I'm looking to another broken image to reflect, which is why we tend to become like the bad parts of the ones we admire. And two, I will crush her with my needs and my expectations and my desires. I will either never confront her with truth that she needs to hear that's real light. This is the light this is the sun, and you need to reflect this. I will never be able to confront her with the truth about herself, her, the real life, the real life, that's real life, right? Giving her life as a result, right? Because I don't want to hurt the person, because if I hurt them or disappoint them, then my glory, my weight, my significance starts to decrease. I'm afraid to lose that person, essentially, right? You become a lousy friend when you're like that. You become a lousy spouse when you're like that or I'll be over-truthful, and I will deeply hurt them because they have to be absolutely perfect. Why? Because unless they are successful, I won't be successful because my glory has shifted from God to that person. Parents, a lot of us have children here. The moment you start to turn to your children, they have to be good. They have to grow up as Christians because what kind of reflection will that have on me? What does that make of me as a parent, as a Christian parent? Parents, we so often look to our children to be our light. In the Asian culture, your parents tell you you are their strength. You are their light. You see that? That's how we're raised. That's what we know. That's what it means to be family, we say. God says, if you reflect my glory... If I am the source of your glory, you will be less focused on your own needs. You'll be less focused on your own success. You will desire to advance the success of other people in a more genuine way because it's not a reflection of your success. So when you love somebody, you can genuinely love them. You can genuinely love them because you're not placing stake in it you have to be successful and perfect because it reflects who I am as a person. Once that goes away because you are a reflection and image of God, you can turn to that person and genuinely care for them, genuinely love them. That takes the bite out of the truth. You see that? That takes the sting out of truth we bring to people. It's all love. It's all based on a genuine concern for them. You will not be under-truthful. You will not be over-truthful. But it's not just that. You'll be less focused on your own needs. You'll be less focused on your own success. You are merely a mirror reflecting the glory of God. You are created in the image of God. So it's not about your success or your perceived needs. In a sense, you will then be able to look outward and genuinely advance the needs of other people. In other words, work and relationships rest. Work stops being your source of worth. So you can actually genuinely just work you will be free of everything that that work means in your life. That it means, that's why I have to find a meaningful job because if it's not a meaningful job, I have less meaning. You see how that works? You can actually look at your job. You can actually look at your work for what it is. It's work, something that God has called you to do and do faithfully. Once you take away the significance and the the status and all the other things that work can get you, for some of us, work is a means to impress other people Because it's not work that's at at the end. It's your love, your need to have approval. Again, validation from people on the outside. For others, it's to find a significant other. Because you're looking... and, And we always end up attracting people with what we win them with. If you're winning your friends to your status, if you're winning your friends with your status or your intelligence or your wealth, what are you winning them to but your status and your intelligence and wealth. And later on, we complain that we feel used. We complain that we're not intimate with people. You get that? You see that? We are just moons reflecting light. You cannot generate light on your own. There are people in this room right now who are, who are going through a period of darkness, experiencing darkness in them right now. So the light is dim. And I want to tell you that it's not because you have unmet expectations. It's not your unmet expectations that are preventing you from being happy. It's actually your unbelief. There's a spiritual blindness that's preventing you from seeing that you have placed your sense of worth and significance in something else. There's a spiritual deafness in your life That's that's setting in. And so you're not listening to other people who are telling you that you are placing your value and worth in something else. There's a spiritual dumbness in your life, right? Because you don't want to own your sin. You don't want to confess your sin. It's unbelief. The fruit of God being placed as a source of worth in your life, the fruit of reflecting God's glory is what? you restore, you, you have a spiritual sight that is restored. You start to see yourself a lot more clearly. You start to see your world a lot more clearly. There's a spiritual hearing that takes place. Words of other people, but the words of God through other people become very convicting and shaping in your life. You start to liken yourself in the image of those words, truthful words. You see that? There's a spiritual mouthpiece that sets in because you're reflecting truth truth about yourself you're conveying that this is at the heart of our community groups this is what community groups should be i haven't been at every community group at metro but this is what community groups at metro are meant to be this is what intimate relationships in the church are meant to be what are you doing how are you spending community we love talking community in this church I know because I was here since the beginning. We love the word community in this church. We love the word community in this church. Do you know what it means? Do you know what it means to commit to community? Do you know what it means to surrender to community? Do you know what it means to confess and own something in the context of community? Once you do, once you begin to reflect light, real light, what happens, it leads to a freedom in your relationships. Relationships stop being mechanical and transactional. Relationships become more organic because it's two broken people sharing about their brokenness, pointing each other to the light, reflecting light, emulating and reflecting light through one another to one another. And what that should do is it results in people then reflecting God's glory. That the weight and significance and importance of God becomes much more magnified because you have tons of images of God coming together and seeing their own image being redeemed through the gospel. That's at the heart of advancing the kingdom in the church. And when that happens, you start to worship. A genuine worship sets in. You see, that's what happens. Otherwise, relationships are going to be mechanical. They're going to be very transactional. And your work is going to be very mechanical and very transactional, for that matter. It's going to lead to a lot of frustration, stepping all over one another to get ahead. Overtly, you're going to hurt each other. You're going to fight one another. Even in the church, there's going to be malice towards one another. Covertly, you're going to gossip. You're going to kick people out. You're going to judge. You're going to withdraw from people. You're going to be closed. You see that? But if God is the source of your worth, this is the end of jealousy. This is the end of gossip. This is the end of covetousness. This is the end of arrogance. This is the end of fear of man. You're going to become open, more open, much more open. You're going to become honest, much more honest. You're going to build a culture. You're going to build community. And so you go to the third implication here. Because we're made in the image of God, we are relational people in a sense, all of us here, every one of us here, we're in many ways the sum of all of our relationships. Because if we're really getting glory from people that we admire, things about people that we admire, and if all those things are pointing and reflecting the image of God in Christ, the image of God, the gospel itself, God himself, the character, the nature, the person, the beauty, the image of God, if we're all reflecting the image of God, and we're drawing from that from one another, then we are the sum of all of our relationships. You're made not to be an original, but to reflect he who is everlasting. It's not your decisions that make you who you are. It's your relationships that make you who you are in many ways. You're the sum of your relationships. Now, I want to make sure that I qualify that. What I'm not saying is you can't blame your relationships for how you turned out. That's, I can't say that. What I'm saying is that we draw from tremendous influences from one another that shape and change, help to change who we are because of what we worship, what we desire, what we value. It's shaped by your influences. That's why your influences are so important. It's why it's not just enough to get somebody you admire as a mentor. You really, it's to, it's to delve into a deeper intimacy, growth, walking together. It's not, a, it's not like a doctor visit every six months, like I go, I go to my dentist to get a cleaning. That's not the way we view our mentors. That's not the way mentorships are supposed to be. It's an organic relationship that's built up, a, very, a supernatural surrender that takes place there. You see that? Now, let me speak to you a little bit as a father not as a pastor for a moment, but let me speak to you as a father. When you're a teenager, for some of us, it's been a while, right? So you're going to have to think back. When you're a teenager and you make a mistake, most of your mistakes that you committed as teenagers are recoverable. I say most because some of them, you may still be working it out, but most of your mistakes are recoverable. And you can make some big mistakes, some really, really big mistakes, but with the right support, with the right family, with the right friends around you, the right support model, right? Even some of your worst mistakes, you can recover from them. When you're in your 20s and you make a big mistake, that pain is often greater because the mistake is much more magnified. A lot of your friendships and your relationships have set in. So that pain can be a bit greater. Some of you in this room have betrayed people. Some of you in this room have been betrayed. And these are people that you've known for a very, very long time. And so even though you have family and friends and the right support, those mistakes in your relationships can lead to a few consequential losses, right? When you're in your 30s, those losses are magnified. They're much bigger. And when you're in your 40s, you may be paying for some of those mistakes for the rest of your life. And when you're 45 and 50, 55, look around, you're pretty much a product in many ways of the people that you've been with, your influences, people that you grew up with. Why? Because you were made in the image of God. And so you're made to reflect others. That's why influences are so important today. It's why your community groups, although we may see them as very transient, flighty, week-to-week, they're very, very important. They're actually very important. What your church teaches you, very important. The way you think culture and build culture in a community, very important. We are deeply relational beings because God, by nature, is relationship. We talked about this last week, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one, by nature is community. By nature, they didn't have community. By nature, they are community. And as a result, we are deeply relational beings. We are shaped constantly by community. We are changed constantly by community. The problem is we are broken images of God. We don't reflect God's image well. We're poor reflections of God, constantly trying to reflect other lights in our lives. So you have this image of God mixed in with constant influences outside, apart from God. And so we're broken. It's like you take this mirror that reflects a person perfectly, and you take a bat and you smash that mirror. That's us. We are a shadow, a a very, very poor representation as a result of the image of God. What do you do? How are you redeemed? What did God do to fix it? And this is our last point. What did God do? In Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the image of God. Actually, the text says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So he is a representation of that invisible God. The Greek word for that is the word icon, image. Now, Hebrews 1 says that And you you have this in your call to worship. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God, the exact representation of his being. That's amazing. It's remarkable. You know what that means? In the ancient times, after the Israelites escaped from slavery in Egypt, they wandered the desert. How did they make it through? How did they make it through the desert? There was a fiery pillar, a radiant cloud that led them. A fiery pillar, a radiant cloud, by day, by night, led them through the desert. And, you know, it was this fire, this cloud, that it was God himself that came to them, mediated by this fire, mediated by this cloud. It was the radiance of God. And the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ is that radiance. Jesus Christ himself says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he is the perfect image of God. The only perfect image of God. You know what that means? Moses, he said what? I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory he asked God to see him. He's saying, I want your presence. I want to see your whole beauty. I want to see you. I want to know you. And yet God only allowed Moses to catch a glimpse of God, a glimpse of his back. But Jesus is saying, if you know Jesus, you actually see the real beauty of God, the real glory of God. Second Corinthians chapter 3, in your word of encouragement, it says this, and I know this. I know this verse because I, this verse was, uh, was pretty much my wedding verse. Uh, if, you, if you came to my wedding, some of you came to my wedding uh, 10 years ago. Um, this is our wedding verse. Um, and so I know the verse pretty well. Basically, I'm going to kind of explain it to you. The Apostle Paul is saying this. When you read the Bible, I'm going to give you some context. When you read the Bible, when you study Moses, when you study the law, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know that Jesus died for you and for your sins, when you read the Bible, it's like there's a thick curtain, a thick veil over your heart. But if you turn to Jesus and receive Him as your Savior and your Lord, that veil is removed. The spiritual sight starts to get restored, essentially. And the Apostle Paul says this, that veil is taken away and we who now have unveiled faces, we start to reflect God's glory. And we're being transformed into His likeness from one degree of splendor to the next. What will draw your soul away from focusing on yourself? What will draw your soul away from focusing on the things that you admire in other people, the things that you covet about them? What will draw your soul away from that? What will draw your soul away from focusing on how you look and your intelligence and your skills and your abilities and your pedigree? You know, you look back at these older generations, they focused on what? Status? built on family, right? This is what's going to validate you. So in the 1950s, you know, if you were going to get married, you'd say, I'm bringing home a guy, I'm bringing home a girl. They'll say, what family did he come from? But today, what do we look at? Their education, their school, the company that they work at, right? The company's stock value, for that matter. Their salary, their titles, what they've accomplished. And even older generations, this is now two to three to maybe five to ten generations ago, they looked at what? How much land did you own? How much livestock do you have? Right? Because they didn't have currencies. That was the currency. How many children do you have? That's what they looked at. What's the difference? What's going to take you away? What's going to draw your soul away from the things that influence you and shape you on a daily because you can't just say, for those of you who grew up in the church and said, well, the answer is pretty simple. you got to make God your center. you got to pray more. you got to serve more. you got to stay plugged into the church. Is that the answer? Is that what's going to happen? Our souls are too captivated by other things. Our desires are too strong. Sin is too strong. Praying in, You can't pray enough to pray away your idolatry. You can't do that. There is a prerequisite to that, is what I'm trying to say. How are you going to do that? The Apostle Paul says, if you learn to see Jesus and his beauty, what he has done for you, what he has done to save you, when you see who Jesus is and then the length that he went to save you, he will become beautiful. And that beauty, you will start to gaze on that beauty. You will fix your eyes on that beauty and it will start to transform you into his likeness. C.S. Lewis says the only way that you will be able to turn away from one particular earthly beauty in your life is if you encounter and are captivated by another beauty. We are naturally drawn to things that are beautiful in our lives. We are naturally drawn, whether it's art, aesthetics, right, whether it's something that you read, music, we are naturally drawn to these things, beautiful people, beautiful food, beautiful art, you see? And so we're naturally drawn to these things. And C.S. Lewis says, what will draw your soul away from the, the grip of these beauties in your life but a greater beauty? You have to encounter a greater beauty. That's what you have to do. Fixing your gaze on the ultimate beauty, fixing your gaze on the ultimate beauty that is Jesus will fix then His image in you. And that is the only hope for your soul, a soul that is constantly fixated on lesser lights. And it's the only hope for you to stop stepping all over other images of God in your life, other people in your life. How did it happen? How do you do that? You have to look to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is the high king. Jesus Christ is the son of God, the radiance of God, the beauty of God, the character of God, Jesus Christ is the brilliance of God, the holy God, the fire of God. In fact, he stands in front of the temple in John chapter 8 and he says, I am the light of the world that has come down. And so he was born homeless and he was poor and he was outcast. He was born in a manger. From the moment he was born, he was outcast. There was no room in the inn for him. And so he slept with the animals. Jesus Christ was almost a victim of infanticide. He was almost a victim of abortion. Herod the king was after Jesus' life before he was even born. You see? Jesus Christ was tortured. Jesus Christ was stripped naked. Jesus Christ was a victim of the ultimate injustice. The holy God come down to earth to save, and yet he himself would not be saved. He endured a mockery of a trial placed on the cross on a tree. He was stepped all over by men. And yet his suffering was even greater than that, because on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is what? Now the weight and the significance and the importance of God is crushing me with his wrath. And I have been forgotten. Now I have truly been outcast. I've been left for dead and now I am insignificant, I am valueless, and I am worthless to the nth degree because God himself has been separated from me. The image of God, the only perfect image of God, utterly shattered. God made him who had no sin to be sin shattered the image of God for us so that in him we might become sin. The righteousness of God, our image of God, the image of God will be restored in Christ. You see that? God left him so he had no light, and therefore there was darkness all around Jesus. Swallowed him up on the outside, but really what he was saying is, my God has left me on the inside I'm caving in because of that darkness. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? It was to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. It was to pay the penalty of our sins that we deserved. When you look at the high king, the holy image of God, come down, sacrificed, suffering the ultimate injustice and oppression and slavery so that we would be set free, so that we would be declared righteous in God's eyes, that becomes beautiful. Doesn't that become beautiful? that becomes beautiful, that is beauty. You look at that, Jesus, that is beautiful. This is holiness becoming sin for me. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. God's love is greater. God's heavy weight, God's heavy worth in Jesus Christ, the perfect representation of God's beauty. When you look at that, when you reflect on that, it will fix your gaze on the beauty of Christ, and you will see, you will see your worth you will see the only validation that you need, that that significance and weight, the heaviest weight and significance that come down and become insignificant for you so that you could have value, you could have worth. You can have the likeness of God. Will you then really care to step over other people? Will you really care by petty things that go on in your life that make you angry and flare up? to tempt you to step all over people, you will turn outside of yourself because that person is the image of God. That person is also growing in the likeness of God. We're all on different journeys, and yet we know that that we're all on a trajectory. We're reflecting the likeness of Jesus. You will start to empower them. You will start to love other people with no preconditions, no expectations. Verse 28, God says, I created all these things for you. They are all yours. Be fruitful. Increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. Rule. Own it all. We're going to be made in the image of God again. We're going to be restored in our image of God again. When you have a whole community doing that, when you have a whole community being restored, one person being restored, we say, great testimony. When you have a whole community of people doing that, this is the end of racism. This is the end of sex trafficking. This is the end of injustice towards women, the poor, the ostracized, the marginalized. This is the end of of oppression. This is the end of classism. This is the end of poverty. You see that? It is an amazing thing that can happen. You know, the 21st century is going to be an amazing era. We're not going to live to see all of it. But until Christ returns, we're seeing lots of people who have wealth being converted now in other countries because they are coming to faith in Christ and they're converting. And so now in these other countries, and now we have missionaries being sent to the United States, particularly targeting the wealthy. Because people know that if we can transform the educated and the wealthy in the cities, in the big cities of the United States, what that will do to impact the communities of the world, because we are such a window to the world. It will shape culture, it will change culture. Don't do it for that, do it for yourself. We're broken images with the possibility to be transformed evermore into the likeness of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Will you do that? Will you reflect on that? Let's pray.